Matthew. And you'll remember we did the first few verses of Matthew. We talked about the genealogy. And then Chad jumped over to uh, the third chapter. And we continued on. And we took a pause at chapter 5 at the end of verse 16. And we went back. So everybody confused already? So uh, that, of course, is, is related to Christmas and the Advent season. And so we spent some time there for several weeks. Well, this morning we're back in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, verse 17. That's where we're going to begin reading in just a moment. Chapter 5, verse 17. Now, I'm basically a trusting person. I start off in most situations with a high level of trust. So if you're just meeting me for the first time and you've robbed a bank or killed someone, I'm going to think the best of you initially. But then when I find out, I'm coming to get you. No, seriously, I I do have uh, pretty much a high trust level. And so that trust level has allowed me to never be very challenged about the idea of accepting God's Word just as it is. Just as it is. That it's absolutely true. That there are no mistakes There are no errors in the Bible. It is completely reliable from the first page all the way to the last page. As some preachers like to say, from Genesis to the maps, God's Word is reliable. I don't have any problem with that. But I find this morning, as we look at these verses together, that I'm in very good company because it seems that Jesus believed it that way too. He accepted Scripture completely. And he said that he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. So let's look at chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're going to read the next section in just a moment. But for now, let's camp here in this statement, these statements by Jesus. Because there's a truth here. And he came to fulfill all that Scripture teaches. The first truth is, has to do with absolute authority. The first truth this morning is absolute authority. He said that the scriptures are eternal and they are unchangeable. He said they are the rock upon, the, upon which the Christian and the Christian life are built. They stand as they are. They're not to be altered or redone. They are the supreme court of all supreme courts. And the verdict here is final. There is no appeal This word stands. And according to Jesus, the only course, the only possible course of action for anyone, even he himself, was to conform to it. 
And though heaven, the Bible says, and though heaven and earth pass away, nothing will pass from this book until everything it says happens. So it will all be completed before the end comes. A second truth we find here is the smallest part. It's what we're calling the smallest part. It is also apparent that Jesus considered every part of the Bible inspired. His teaching here is that every part was authoritative, even the smallest part. If you look there in verse 18 again, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest part, not the least stroke of a pen. Some translations say every dot and tittle, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, can you and I live like that? Can we truly accept everything the Bible says? Because we live in an age of high skepticism, don't we? We live in an age when we're being challenged. All you have to do is turn it on and watch it. And according to who's giving the news that day, there will be an edge to it. There will be some kind of thing related to religious stuff that a lot of shadow of doubt is put on. Because we're being asked a lot. And by today's culture and standards, we're being, we're being asked an amazing lot. For some of us who were born a few years ago, it seems to have changed a lot, hasn't it? So we live today in high criticism or a high critical time. So even in this room, some of this may ring true for you because some people will say something like this. You know... I really don't like the Old Testament. I prefer the New Testament. I'm really kind of a New Testament guy. Or someone else might say, well, I'm uncomfortable with all of these references that Jesus makes to blood. How gory is that? That's, ooh. That's so un-2016, isn't it? Are there parts of the gospel, are there parts of the Bible that bother you? Are, there, are you troubled by some things? Do you have problems accepting some things? When I was younger, there was an evangelist by the name of Bob Harrington. Anybody remember that name, Bob Harrington? He was the chaplain of Bourbon Street because he spent a lot of his ministry years down in New Orleans on Bourbon Street. And one of the sermons he was famous for was he would take a copy of Scripture. He would take a copy of the Bible and he would start talking about how you and I, you know, we say we believe, and, but we don't accept certain things. And, and he would go through passages and say, well, there's something that we don't do or we don't observe, so we'll just throw it out. And he would literally tear pages out, whole chapters. And so by the time he got through, it was kind of flimsy. God's Word didn't have everything in it anymore. His point was that if we don't believe those words, and if we're not willing to follow those truths, then they really don't belong there anyway. We didn't need them, right? Because we're not going to observe them or follow them or accept them or like them anyway. He, so he would run the gamut of the exceptions, ripping out pages, and when he was finished, it would be kind of a flimsy book. If you have a copy of today's bulletin, I want you to look on the back of it. Flip over to the back on the last page. And down there in the, at the bottom and kind of in the corner is what we call our core values. See them there? 
We have said, we've voted on it, we've discussed it, and we've decided that we accept these as the core values for Friendship Baptist Church. The Word, the believer's foundation. And yet I wonder, do we sometimes have trouble accepting the story of creation that we find in the Word? Do we have uh, problems with the idea of parting of the Red Sea or the virgin birth or perhaps miracles? Because scientifically, it's all impossible. Scientifically. So if you take that view completely, you're going to have a hard time with some of those issues. And we could list them on and on through God's Word, the things that you and I sometimes are troubled by if we don't accept this Word as it is. What about fellowship? That's the next one on our Corvée's list. Knowing Christ and other believers. And yet some would be quoted as saying, man, I don't even like these people. I just come here to hear the Word preached. Or I like the music. Or uh, I like the coffee and the donuts. I just don't want to be around too many of y'all because y'all creep me out. We've said we believe in prayer, which connects the believer to Christ, in Christ to God. That's our most immediate access. We have an audience with the king of the universe, the creator of the universe. And yet, if we were to total up the amount of prayers that you and I did this week, the time we spent in real prayer, it might be a little thin. So if we have immediate access, then why don't we go for it and use it? What about generosity? Because generosity, we believe, advances the gospel. And some of uh, you are already thinking, aren't you? Here he goes. He's going to talk about money. We get a hard line on things like that. So, because sometimes our attitudes are, I work hard for what I make. Nobody gave me this job. I earned it. This money is mine. You ever heard any of those? What about worship or magnifying God? And I'm just here to get something so I can get through the week. Or go to church. Well, I can worship in the woods and I can worship on the lake. And yes, you can. But the Bible also talks about us coming together and assembling together. And what about evangelism or sharing Christ? Oh, I, I can't share my faith. I don't have all those verses memorized yet. But we all have a story as believers of what God has done in our lives. So you see, it could be that this morning, in one or two of those things we just mentioned, you might have found yourself unsure as well. Now, a few months ago, Chad was preaching, and he mentioned the Jefferson Bible. One of the founding fathers of our country, Thomas Jefferson, who I have a high regard for as an intellect and a high regard for what he did to help start this country and give us the heritage we have, he was also a little unsure about his faith. And by that I mean he took a copy of the Bible and he took pieces, he cut pieces out that he didn't agree with or that he didn't believe in. And he published something called the Jefferson Bible. Now, I have high respect for him as a founding father. But I question why any of us would have the right to take out sections and honestly believe that those parts don't belong there. 
Because my understanding and what Jesus is saying here this morning is that everything belongs there. It's all truth, and we are to accept it. So we, we have those tendencies, don't we? Sometimes we want to pick and choose the things we want to do. And, and yeah, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we're challenged. But it's still there. The truth is still there. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture, underline all, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. All is useful. And then we could spend hours talking about the whole issue of authority, which we mentioned a moment ago about absolute authority. You see, we live in a culture where everything about authority is being challenged, and that is going to influence us and influence our children and influence our grandchildren and our neighbors because of our attitudes about authority because it's going to make it harder to accept this as the authority for my living and for our living if we have a problem generally with authority. You can look around. All you have to do, again, is turn on the television and watch the news. I know this week I saw several things about what's going on in the city of Chicago, which seems to be an absolute breakdown of authority. If that's what we're dealing with everywhere, if we don't respect authority and the laws that keep us from having chaos, then how can we move forward as a people? If we don't respect this word as our authority, how do we move forward in the Christian life? Jesus teaches that Scripture is absolute. He teaches that every part is absolute and to be accepted. He teaches that he came to fulfill it. So here he is. The author of Scripture came and lived on the earth to fulfill it. And then he inspired the writers of the New Testament to interpret correctly what he had done. He foretold his coming. He came and he told people about it. Jesus believed Scripture. He submitted himself to Scripture. And he taught that we will only believe in him as we believe Scripture. So we're to have an allegiance to Scripture. But here are some questions for you to consider this morning. And that I need to consider. Do I submit myself to Scripture... As Jesus Christ did. Do I submit myself to Scripture as Jesus Christ did? A second question is, do I acknowledge Christ as the author? Christ as the subject. And Christ as the absolute authoritative interpreter of his own acts. When you and I deal with these questions, it allows us to move on and move forward in faith. And have a better understanding of what he requires Of us as his followers. Our reservations about Scripture keeps us becoming more like him because we're on a journey together, a journey towards becoming more and more like Christ every day in our lives and our actions, how we deal with situations. We are challenged to be more like him all the time. We are, the Bible says, new creations. We've been given, literally, a new song to sing. And we're going to introduce that song to you right now, a new song to sing. But as we're thinking about that idea, remember, you and I are the results of reconciliation. God reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ. 
He came and he offered that to us because you and I are to be about reconciliation, about reconciling the world to him. Ever since the garden, when man allowed sin to get in the way and build a wall between God and man, God has been trying to reconnect with all of us and reconnect with the people he loves far more than we can even understand. You are his creation, and he loves you, and he seeks reconciliation this morning with you. And then you in turn, and I in turn, can offer reconciliation to the world. When you feel comfortable with this song, we encourage you to sing with us. Sermon, Bill. What's wrong with you? I saw some of you going to sleep. I knew it was time for what. No, we, uh, that was really actually planned. So uh, you'll be hearing that song more in the coming weeks. Verse 21. So be ready. We're going to read this next section in just a moment. Now, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount... In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, we read that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He spoke in a way they had not heard before. The people they thought were leading them as religious leaders didn't teach the way he did. But as powerful as his authority was, the standard that Jesus set was even more startling. And we see it there in beginning in verse 21. You have longed, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The standard of the day was an external righteousness, an external goodness. And Jesus is speaking about full transparency, Formation of the personality. This life was the real thing. Up to this point in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he had spoken of Christian character. He talked about poor in spirit, sorrow for sin, meekness, hunger, and thirsty for hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker, persecuted, and to be salt and light in the world. But in verse 21, what what had before been a positive approach now turns to more of a negative approach. 
It is not enough to keep the letter of the law. We must adhere to the spirit of the law as well. True Christian morality comes from the heart, and only God can provide that. Take a look at the screen. In this verse, Christ begins by using the example of the Sixth Commandment. Sixth Commandment said, you shall not murder. Now, ever since Moses brought the tablets down from Mount Sinai, it was always about the external act of murder. And if you look at the, uh, if you go to a dictionary, and I did in this case, the Oxford Dictionary says that murder is the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another. But Jesus makes it very uncomfortable for all of us when we get to this passage. This would have been a great passage to skip because he's expanded it to the point that it's about what we're thinking just as much as it's about how we act. He's challenging us and he's asking us basically this kind, these kinds of questions. Is murder nothing more than the act? And is that, is that what murder really is? It's the act. But his teaching is that it's more than that. It's about the heart. God is concerned with anger and shedding of blood, of course. But not only anger, but expressing contempt. And that's what we see in verse 22, the last part. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, we could camp here for a long time, but trying to simply state this, raka means empty. It's a term that means empty, or even deeper, like nothing. 
or nobody. So it's a slur on a person's reputation. But saying you fool, which is a step further, according to this text, saying you fool is the same as saying you do not matter as a human being. You do not deserve to live on this planet, which is completely opposite from how God sees us. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. He's reminding us that we all matter to God. And we see this as Jesus was willing to go even to the cross, willing to give his life for people that that you and I might not think we're worthy of that. We might decide they really don't matter. And Jesus is trying to remind us that everybody matters. We set ourselves up to decide a person's value, don't we? That's what we did. And I know that God's in my head about this because even this morning, someone called the church office and needed someone to pay for one more day of staying in a hotel or a motel somewhere in this area. And he made it even harder because this guy has called us before. And we helped him one other time. And I know enough about his situation to know that probably in a year or so or a few months, he's going to call back because he can't seem to get past wherever he is. But, of course, this morning there was no time to go drive to Garland and talk to him. So we did. We paid for one more day so that he could stay. Because as I'm reading this even now, I'm reminded that everybody matters. Even when we don't approve of how they're handling their lives, everybody matters. And particularly, everybody matters to God. Jesus is saying here, you and I do not have the right or the authority to take on God's role. Jesus is saying that these things make us guilty when you measure it by God's standard. And anger keeps us from developing the kind of spirit that pleases God. So he's trying to help us here to put away anger. It puts a wall of separation between us and God. And it's more than controlling what we say. It's about our thought control. So if you and I live under the idea that as long as we don't take an action, we're okay. According to this passage, we're not. Because we still have to deal with what goes on in here. What are we thinking? I can smile at you. And shake your hand and be nice to you. And all along I'm thinking, why don't you just die? See, that's not good, is it? And here's what's really not good for us. God says, Jesus says, it's the same thing. If you think it, it's just like you acted on it. Do we commit murder? By this standard that the Bible seems to be teaching here, I'm afraid the answer is yes. We lose our temper. We harbor grudges. We gossip. We kill by neglect. We kill by spite and jealousy. If we could see our hearts the way God sees our hearts, I bet there's some worse things there than we want to acknowledge. Good news, though. There is a cure for this. There's a cure for anger. These verses move from the negative to the positive. They show us a cure for anger. The first step in that cure is, according to Jesus, it is to admit that we do get angry. 
Oh, ah, Bill, I never, you know, I never get angry. I ne- really? I think the first step is to admit, yeah, we all do. We all do. We all do. We sin, but we cover up the sin. We refuse to acknowledge it to ourselves. So where do we begin? We begin here. We admit our anger, admit our guilt, and that's the first step. The second step is to overcome, to overcome our anger is to correct the injustice. And that's what Matthew 23 and 24 is about. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. It's not enough to perform a ceremony is the point of this. Forgiveness involves restitution. It involves seeking forgiveness. It's about reconciliation. Third step is to do what we must do immediately or as soon as possible, ASAP. The longer we wait, the more damage that can be done. You know how if you leave something old in the refrigerator, just because you don't touch it doesn't mean it's still not going to rot. There can still be damage done in the time it takes us to deal with it and then try to try to f- help it or try to restore it or try to reconcile it. Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. You know, we talk about that all the time when we mention marriage, that it's never good to let the sun go. Don't go to bed mad, right? But this is more than just about your spouse. This is about the things we have to deal with. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says in the first part, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. And the last part of 15, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So we have a time frame to do something about it. And the longer we wait, the more the potential for damage. And not only damage to the person or the the thing you need to work on or need to reconcile or need to seek forgiveness from, it's about what it can do to you and me. All of us know people that have let things grow and become bitter. And the thing I've tried, I've always prayed, God, don't let me become a bitter old man. I don't want to become that. Because this happened or because that person did this or because this happened over here or I, you know, whatever the situation, I don't want to become a bitter old man. And that's how you keep from it. As challenging as it is, as uncomfortable as that makes me sometimes, the Bible says you need to work on it. You need to take action. And then the fourth step in the cure for anger, we must ask God to change our heart because only God can do it. I cannot change my heart. I can decide some things, but that's not really heart change. It's about allowing God to do transformation with me. And then I, in turn, can do transformation or seek to. As much as we want to get some kind of satisfaction when we get wronged, it doesn't help. Satisfaction is short-lived. And it won't take away the bitterness. It won't take away the rot that can set up in our minds. In fact... We must come to the point at which God can change our hearts and our minds. We must come to the point that we don't even want to do it. Because when we get to that point, God really has and can change our minds. Romans 12.2 says, 
we shall be transformed from within by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, 19 says, do not take revenge, my friends. Oh, I love this one. This makes me really uncomfortable. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Well, Bill, that all sounds real high and lofty and hard. In fact, it sounds unrealistic, doesn't it? It, found, it sounds impossible, doesn't it? Well, you're right. It is hard. It's hard for me to say those things knowing the, thing, the mistakes I've made in my own life. So I understand. This, these verses right here are, are huge. They challenge us in in. Humongous, if I can use that word, in humongous ways. And it is downright impossible without him to guide us. You can't do it without him this morning. In fact, you might be saying, well, how dare Jesus even ask me to do this? He's the perfect son of God. And I'm just a weak human. Well, yeah, you are. And I am too. And yet there it is. You want a standard to live by? There it is. You want peace in your life? There it is. You want to get out of this angry tempest that you live in where you seek to get even because something didn't go well. My business failed. My child didn't grow up the way I meant for them to. My spouse left me. That guy cheated me out of the car deal we had. On and on we can go because we've all been touched by something, haven't we? Well, here it is. And only he can make the difference. So this morning, regardless of what you're working on or working with or dealing with, the God of the universe has said, I love you so much that here's the plan. First, you accept Christ So you've got a tool to work with. You've got access to the Father. Because until you accept Him, all this stuff is just going to stay there. You can't fix it on your own. So if you've never met Christ this morning, that's the first step. But then whether you've been a believer for a few days or for decades, we can still let stuff eat back into our lives and do damage. Perhaps make us sour and bitter or sensitive. You know, we talk about these kinds of things, and it's the first, if you are carrying a lot of sensitivity around today, the first time somebody makes you upset at the church you're attending, you're probably going to go find another church rather than try to deal with why you're sensitive. There is a lot of stuff in this room this morning. And I don't know all your stories. But I do know that it starts with Christ. And it moves on to end with him. And I invite you this morning to consider where you are in that journey. And whether or not you need to receive Christ. Or we need to seek forgiveness. Or whether you need to go home this afternoon and start writing letters or making phone calls. 
I don't know where you are in your journey, but I'll bet some of us need to take some action. In a Baptist church, we do something called an invitation here, where we are going to sing a worship chorus, reminding us about how great God is, and we're going to offer you the, the opportunity to pray, to sing, to worship, or perhaps to come down and pray, perhaps to come and seek some counsel. But I would encourage you today, if you really want to get rid of your anger and old stuff that you're carrying around, that you take action on it, like God's Word says. Today, right now, while the Holy Spirit and you are connected, before you can get all the stuff that distracts you coming at you in a few minutes when we leave, why don't you deal with business with God right now? Would you stand with me? And let's pray. And now, Father, in your name, we ask you to take your word. And what it says. And help us use it. And identify it. And then submit to it. So that we can be better. Because Father, we want to be better. We don't want to stay like we are. We always want to be better. So use this time. We're praying your Holy Spirit has freedom to move. And that we don't get in the way. So whether we pray or we sing or we act, that we want to do business with you for the next few minutes. We seek your son because we pray in his name. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have something to deal with this morning, do it now. Don't go home with it. Do it now.